Welcome back to Ganamai. It didn't say. It did on the screen. Oh. Yeah. Um, as is our custom. If I can find my mouse, there it is. Yeah, we we want to identify whether we're in fellowship with God or out of fellowship with God before we begin our studies. That way we can uh, be under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit rather than our own human thought process and academic abilities. So um, take 30 seconds or so and identify whether you uh, have any sin that's hindering your relation your relationship with God. Uh, and I'll give us about 30 seconds and I would encourage you to confess that and agree with God on that being sin and allow him to restore you to fellowship with him. So that we can be submitted to him and his teaching as we go through this study. So take 30 seconds or so, then I'll open with prayer on our, uh, or for us as a group. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening and the opportunity to once again get together as friends and believers and children of you to study your word and to examine what you have recorded to us as the mechanics and the protocols and the standards that you have set in place for us and emotion around us. May we understand your word tonight. May we confess any sin that may be hindering us as we continue through this study understanding what it means to be truly spiritual as James defines it and you teach through him to us. Thank you for the opportunity to get together and the fun that we can have here. Uh, may we enjoy our fellowship and at the same time, Father, be uh, submitted to you so that we can understand what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're off of our side studies and back into James chapter 1, verse 17, or I guess just back into James chapter 1. We're starting verse 17 tonight, and we'll only get through about the first phrase, which I've labeled 17a, and I think we're probably going to have about three or four parts to 17, but we'll see. Um, just a reminder on the side studies we did, we went through the operational framework of humanity and identified that there's a principle that we operate from that is based upon information we perceive and then evaluate and then implement into our life through dependence. And what we depend upon is what produces our actions. We came out with the equation that knowledge plus faith equals action because knowledge plus faith equals belief. And every, every action is the result of some belief that we possess. Um, but tonight we're getting back into the book of James. So allow me to remind you that James is dealing with one topic in his book and his, his epistle, which is true spirituality. And we are focusing in chapter one on the topic or the evidence of that topic uh, being faith in action. So James is identifying that faith in action is a part of what true spirituality, true spirituality looks like. And, uh, he's been giving us the mechanics we need in order to understand what it means to be truly spiritual and how to accomplish that truly spiritual status, if you will. Um, it is not a level you attain. It is more a belief and action that produces, um, in reality, true spirituality so that you can actually understand and relate spiritually to um, the God of the universe and to what he has for his plan here for you and those around you. Um, the key there is understand the word faith, pisteos, 
Pisteos is that feminine noun that we have talked about, which means complete dependency based on response. It identifies a relationship between two or more objects or persons in which one of the objects or persons is dependent upon the other completely to produce some sort of action, such as sitting in a chair, you depend upon the chair to support your weight. Human viewpoint is what we typically uh, depend upon and we are taught and told to not depend upon human viewpoint or what we call sight-based because it's perceived through the senses. Uh, but human viewpoint we have identified as a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this human world system. The opposite of that uh, would be divine viewpoint which is faith-based. In other words, it's dependency-based. It's a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based upon dependence upon spiritual truth doctrines of God's world system. In other words, what he has defined to us through his word and through revelation elsewhere. We studied tes idios epithumios, which was the lust pattern of the individual, and it's the lust pattern is a reference to the, a part of the sin nature. The scripture identifies three types of dominant lust patterns within humanity, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And 1 John 2.16 identifies these things when it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Verse 14, uh, since we're dealing with this process of what we've called the process of testation, uh, being that everyone is tested to sin, basically, and the word that's translated as tempted in verse 14 is the same word that we have for test or try, um, and it means to test or evaluate someone's character uh, by external or sources. So when we're looking at this process of testation, we're looking at verse 14 and 15, which identify the process and what the process produces. And then verse 16, we dealt with a few weeks back, which talks about, uh, it's the first part in how to defeat the test, giving us the mechanics. And then verse 17 is another part to that part, or to the, the process of defeating the test. So here's our review of the principles taught in verse 14. Number one, the individual lust pattern that you possess is the agent under which you will be tested. Uh, the bait is laid, in other words, to be appealing to you. If the bait is not appealing, it's not going to be laid. Number two, you'll be dragged out by force under your lust pattern. Uh, your lust pattern catches the attention of the bait, or the bait catches the attention of your lust pattern, I should say, and that draws you out to the point that you have to make a decision of what you're going to do with it. The same concept of being dragged to the um, to Christ by the Heavenly Father. Uh, when we're dragged to the point of the cross, we have to use we have to use our free will to determine what we're going to do with it. God drags us to it and says, "Make a decision." That's the same phrase used uh, in John twelve thirty two and John six forty four, along with in our phrase here in verse fourteen, where it says, "Carried away." Principle three taught by verse fourteen is that you will be baited by Satan and company under your lust pattern. The lust pattern is the agent under which you're baited, but Satan and company is the source that produces the bait that your lust pattern is drawn to. So the lust pattern is the agent um, by which you're tested, and Satan and company produce the test, produce the bait to test you under your lust pattern. Verse 15, um, we've got this as 15a, then one lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. There's more to that verse than just this part, but this is what we talked about as the principles um, and relative to the process of testation. Number one, the lust conceives when it takes the desired object, the bait and the trap, and the person who desires the object and makes them one together. Number two, conception by lust is only possible when the individual consents with his free will to be taken to taken by lust to the to the desired object. Number three, when the individual's volition is made one with the de desired object, sin is brought forth. 
And then verse 16, uh, a more recent study, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, in James 1, 16, the, the principles we learned here is that the process of testation results in deception. Number two, deception is the end game and the purpose, therefore, of the process of testation. And as such, it is the purpose result of Satan and company. Satan and company, well, I guess I should just read the principles because I'm going to repeat them here. The process of testation is Satan and company's plan to deceive believers from truth. The goal is not to cause believers to sin, but rather to deceive them from truth through seduction. Sin is the symptom and byproduct of this deception. In other words, their goal isn't just to get us to sin and hinder us with sin. Their, their baiting the trap gets us to sin, which deceives us from truth. So to further assist us in defeating that process of testation, James, under, James undergirds his statement in verse 16 regarding the deceptive tactics, tactics of Satan and company with the truth with truth, for the purpose of transforming the diaspora's thought process regarding the process of testation. The diaspora, again, being those scattered, those believers scattered throughout um, the various lands of the New Testament because of persecution they received after believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. James 1.17 teaches this truth and is used by James to create a solid foundation from which the battle against testation may be waged. We're going to learn tonight, uh, and I'm saying this now just because when we get to the end, it it may or may not sink in. We're going to learn tonight the norm or standard that we ought to have when it comes to the process of testation or being tested or tempted to sin. We have a, a norm or standard right now. And different baits will produce different results for us. In other words, we will give in to some and we won't give in to others. And whether they're appealing or not, that, well, the bait's going to be appealing, but whether we give in to that bait or not, it's because of a belief we have and that, that produces the action within us. So James is going to give us a norm or standard something we can depend upon in verse 17 to create a proper action when we're tested. And he's reminding the diaspora of truth. At the same time, he's teaching them what they should believe regarding what the bait is. Or is not, I should say. So James 1.17, our study tonight is on the first part. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting, shifting shadow. We'll focus tonight predominantly on the every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. The phrase every good thing given is derived from the Greek phrase pos dosis agathos. This phrase is the emphasis of James's foundational truth, which when, de when depended upon allows the believer to adequately battle the process of testation. Beginning with the word pos, James creates an abstract statement which contains a category of items within, the, within itself. We've seen this word oftentimes before. Um, it should start being familiar in some respects. Um, pos is that word that we have that identifies a group of things and every individual aspect that is a part of that group. We've got a group of people, so we'd use every people or yeah, every people in, the, in this group, in this city. So we've got a large group that has different things within it. Okay, so there's individual individual aspects within a larger group. Um, some translations have translated this as all. That's not a bad translation in my opinion because the emphasis is not on each individual aspect within the group, but the but it's on the group which contains every little thing, every individual every aspect. We're not talking each and every. Like, so much as Yeah. Each individual one, and this is in the case of 
actually that was a different rig board. Oh wait. Yeah, because I double checked that this afternoon and that was at Costas instead of Pos, which was each and every individual within the group. But this is talking more about the group that has different individuals within it. So rather than the emphasis being precisely, yeah. So it's the group that's made up of individuals rather than the individuals which are part of the group. <clears throat> POS is an adjective which has been translated as every. However, it more accurately represents an entire group which consists of indiv individual things. In that sense, POS identifies every part of a complete category of items. In other words, we're getting a grouping that is going to be consisting of good things given. or Because we got the phrase every good thing given. Every is referencing each and individual part of that group, but it's that it's focusing on the overall group rather than the individual um, things. Um, and then it's those good things which are given that make up the parts and the individual items in the group. <clears throat> Being an adjective, pos describes or modifies a noun. In this passage, pos modifies dosis, which is the second Greek word there we have, um, which does not actually translate into good thing. It's actually the reference to given or giving. Um, it's a nominative feminine noun, which means giving. And being a noun, it identifies the concept of giving rather than the verbal act of giving. So we're not talking about someone giving something, but rather that something is something has been given. Okay, we'll we'll deal with that explanation um, as we continue on. But for now, postdosis means every giving. <clears throat> to better understand postdosis, remember that the process of testation includes the seducing of the believer away from truth towards a desirable object. It is the promise of receiving this object which seduces and draws out the believer. Attaboy, Maxie. Perhaps we should get the little Bashan for Zay a notepad. Alright. To better understand postdosis, remember that the process of testation includes the seducing of the believer away from truth towards a desirable object. We put James 1.14 back up there. It says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. It is the promise of receiving the bait which seduces and draws out the believer. In other words, there's a transaction that's going to take place. You give in to the, your desire for that bait, you're going to receive it. That would be a receiving. The bait was given, therefore it's a giving. So you've got a giving and a receiving. The giving of the bait by Satan and company, the receiving of the bait through your free will and your lust taking you to it. So we've got that giving and receiving concept. It's oftentimes an accounting and church offering term. In the accountant's world, the term giving and receiving is used to identify transactions which are either outgoing or incoming. Giving is a label given to those things which have been given. Or in a church congregational setting, the offering that is collected is also known as the giving. When you count up the offering, you're counting up the giving. So the thing that it has been given. James's usage is similar, but he describes dosis with pos to create the phrase every giving. So we've got this large group that contains each of the individual things which may be given in a giving as an overall group. Every giving, every time this every time something is given, there's a giving. 
There are two types of givings which James deals with in this passage. Good givings he deals with directly, and bad givings he deals with indirectly. Let me point out just for the sake of clarity here, dosis is singular, not plural. I've created a plurality there, and I probably shouldn't have, just because we're, we've now taken it out of this context and said that there's good things that are given and there's bad things that are given. So there's good givings and bad givings. So in our passage, dosis is singular, good giving. And uh, in this abstract argument we're just dealing with real quickly, good givings and bad givings are the two that we're comparing one to the other. So with there being two types of givings that could occur, a good giving and a bad giving, you've got James dealing directly with good giving in this passage versus bad giving, which we would actually indirectly see in verses 14 and 15 with the bait. The bait would be considered a bad giving. So in verse 17, James identifies the source of good giving or good givings as a type. Agathos is an adjective used to describe, to describe dosis, the giving. As an adjective, agathos identifies something which possesses natural inherent value. In this sense, as valuable, in other words, because it's, it possesses natural inherent value, it therefore is valuable, agathos is translated with the loosely used English word good. In English, good has a variety of meanings and usages. Good predominantly means that which is pleasant or causes a pleasing result. In that sense, what is good is that which is desirable. Being that desire lies within the beholder, what is good for one person may differ from another. That is not to say that we are endorsing the concept of absolute truth, or non-absolute truth, I should say, um, or relative um, morality, or if you want, just relativity. The concept that what is good for me, or what's right for me, is not right for you. And what's right for you may not be right for me. It just depends on what we want. Um, this is where we get philosophical discussion breakdowns. It's kind of like doing bad math when you're dealing with this concept because people on a human viewpoint level will use the word good to also mean that which is naturally valuable rather than that which is pleasing or pleasant. Um, and it does have that sense in part of its usage. But predominantly we use the word good to identify what's pleasing to any a variety of different things. Um, depends on the person and the personality there. What is good for one person may not be good for another, yet in our adjectival uses of good, when we transpose that onto nominal or noun types of usages, such as an adjective describing something as pleasant to now describing something as moral, we have an issue because it's like doing bad math, realistically. Um, you can't... Let me get my note page up here a little more because I wrote a little bit on this down below. If you're doing a math prog pro project and or a math equation and you attempt to complete the equation without doing the proper order of operations, you're going to end up with incorrect answers. There's stuff all over the place on Facebook with this kind of stuff. Is someone will post an equation and then say, what's the answer? And you've got 15 different answers that people are throwing up there. And really there's only one real answer. Well, if you get the wrong answer, it's basically because you did bad math. You didn't follow the procedure. You didn't follow the protocol. Now, that's kind of like using good as an adjective to define what's moral or right. Because what's moral or right has to be defined by that which is moral or right, rather than something which is immoral or contains immorality. In other words, humans can't define what's moral because they themselves are not moral. Morality has to be defined by something which is moral, and that um, being by definition a god-like being, and the god 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, what is in reality desirable is not equivalent to what is in reality moral, because morality is defined not by desirability, but by natural inherent value established by one superintending source. In other words, God defines what's moral because he is moral. That would then include that a non-moral being cannot define morality. So morality does not lie within the beholder. That which is pleasing differs depending on the desirability of the outcome or what a person desires themselves. Um, but morality doesn't in reality change within the beholder because it's defined by a source and that source must be itself moral. That said, for the sake of future philosophical discussions here and elsewhere, morality must be defined by something which itself is entirely moral, else it is subject to being improperly defined. If something is immoral and it attempts to define morality, it is very vulnerable to creating an immoral definition or an inaccurate definition of morality because itself is immoral. That's free, no charge. Postdosis agathos is that phrase that we're looking at. And um, with our little diatribe about morality and good and pleasing and all that other stuff we just talked about, um, James is identifying through this phrase, postdosis agathos, that every giving which possesses natural inherent value must be given by someone who possesses the same natural inherent value. That is God himself. Being that God himself is naturally and inherently valuable, he can only give that which is naturally and inherently valuable. In other words, God does not give bad things. God does not accomplish um, what we would consider sin or unrighteousness because it doesn't fall in line with his character. Postdosis agathos. Get my cursor back here. It's playing hooky. Postdosis agathos is the first part of James's foundational undergirding for verse 16. He couples it with kai pos talion dorema, which has been translated as and every perfect gift. <clears throat> Before we get into that part, let me just go back to postdosis agathos just to make sure what we're saying has been, or what James is saying has been properly understood. He just got done in verse 16 saying, stop being deceived. And we identified that the deception that was occurring was that we were placing value, the individual was placing value on the bait in the trap, which was inherently worthless. And now he's coming in and saying, hey, that's worthless. And its source, you can tell where it comes from because it's worthless. So he's saying, instead of being seduced with things you know are worthless, look for that which is good, that which has been given as good. And not only that which is good, but also every perfect gift. Kai is a logical conjunction, and is used here to connect two logical statements. That is to say, then, that James views the good giving of the first phrase that we looked at, and the perfect gift as having a logical connection, much like a common denominator in math. Kai here is used to identify a logical connection between two different statements. A common denominator you use to identify a common source or common factor in the equation or in the, the numbers that you're using in math. Um, in other words, what James is getting at here is that it is logical that every good giving is from God and also that every perfect gift is from God. Again, because he is himself good and he himself is complete. 
if that which is naturally inherently valuable comes from a source which is the same, then every gift which is a part of that giving should be of similar quality. POS here is used in the same manner as the previous statement. and It identifies every item which makes up a larger group or category. This time the category is different as it emphasizes gift, the gift which is given during the givings rather than the giving itself. So there's this time of giving and then there's a gift that is a part of the giving. So it's logical that we're talking about two of these, two of these things together. There's a giving and what is given, the gift, is a part of the giving. So we've got the object that is given in any given moment, with a lot of givens, and then we've got the giving, which is given in any given moment with the gift. So you've got the gift and the giving in which the gift was given. Did you write this as a tongue twister for you? I didn't. We're just making this up as we go. Well, it's like at Christmas, there's the giving, and then there's one particular, if you look at one specific present, that's the gift. The giving is the event and yeah. the Or in other words, the offering is the giving, and the gift of each individual makes up the giving. The 20 they drop in before they take out 10 to make change. Right. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully it's not the 10 they drop in to take out the 20 for change. Well, That's not how it's supposed to work. <laughs> Depends if you define it good as moral or good as pleasing. All right. So this time our category is emphasizing the gift that's given during the givings rather than the giving itself. James uses the word dorema. Now remember, our word dosis was for the giving, and this word dorema is the gift. Both are nouns. Um, and dorema is used to identify a present which is given to someone or thing. Um, I use the term present just because I don't want to use the term gift. Dorema <laughs> means good. gift. It's something, yeah. <laughs> Go figure, I've used it enough. Dorema is an object that's given as a gift, it is the gift itself. Um, James modifies dorema with talion, an adjective which means complete. We've seen this a few times already. Per, or first time was in James 4, I believe, where James was identifying the reason why trials and testation occur in the life of a believer, and that was to make the believer perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James 1.4 says, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Those two words emboldened there, perfect, um, the two times it's written there, those are from the same root of talion, and it's the same word. Talion describes something as being a completed object. In other words, there's a plan or specifications created, drawn up before this object is created and built, and when the object is completed to in harmony with the specifications, you've got a completed talion object. Um, so the object described by Talion is a finished or completed product having been constructed according to the specifications of its blueprints and it's finished. It's a finished product. That's what we're talking about here is it's a complete gift. Um, and that's why it is oftentimes translated as perfect as it, it gets that finished concept. The word complete in 1.4 comes from uh, a different word which means, for a summary, assimilation, um, becoming like another, another thing or reach a maturity, basically. Um, Kaipos talion dorema, that phrase, and every perfect gift, is where we get the concept that the 
gift that is given during the givings is the right gift for that moment of giving. In other words, if we are in need of something, God gives that which we need, and that which is completely our need, for what He's trying to accomplish within us. We may be starving, spiritually and physically. God may feed our spirit rather than feeding our, our body. He may feed our body rather than feeding the spirit. It depends on His will for that moment. But whatever He gives is good, meaning naturally, inherently valuable, and it's complete. He's it's within the within harmony of his specifications for that giving. So James identifies two logically connected statements. The first being, and this is basically just the verse uh, as we've so far studied it. The first being, every giving which is naturally and inherently valuable and logically connected, every complete gift is from above. And that is from above part is what we will endeavor in next. It comes from the phrase, esteen anothen, These notes apparently are rampant with typos. Let's fix that right now. Austin Anothen is a phrase that is translated in English as is from above. James identifies that both the good giving and the complete gift exist from above. Esteen is a verb which identifies an object as existing in a state of being rather than an action. Now, run would be an action verb. Is, are, am, was, were, those are all state of being. It's identifying something exists in the state of being something else. Red, hard, whatever. This being the case, James is identifying the good giving and the complete gift as existing in a specific state of being. We need to find out what that state of being is, but let's examine this example. The sentence, the bedrooms are above us. We designed this for this house. The bedrooms, there are two of them, are above us. There is a guest bedroom over here, but the bedrooms, for the most part, are above us. In the example sentence, bedrooms is identified as existing through that phrase, or through the word are, in the state of being above us. Us being us. Above us is up there, so therefore we find the bedroom, right? Okay, double checking. The location of the bedrooms is a characteristic or attribute which is being attributed to the bedrooms. They exist above us. Therefore, they are above us. In similar fashion, the good giving and complete gift exist in a specific state of being, which is anothen. Anothen also means above. It's been translated as from above, and James uses, that at, uses anothen as an adverb of place to identify the location from which the good giving and the complete gift exist. Anothen literally means above, however, this cannot be properly understood without the understanding that it is used as an adverb to describe an action. It's not a preposition. It's an adverb in this usage. So, <clears throat> that action in English is the next part of verse 17, coming down from the Father of lights. Therefore, we understand contextually that it's from above that every good gift is given and every perfect or every complete gift exists. So the good giving and the, the complete gift exist above. From above, they come to us through um, the Father of lights. Remember that the good giving and complete gift are being attri attributed a state of existence here. They exist in the state of being above. This being the case, James is identifying that every giving, which is naturally and inherently valuable, and every complete gift exists in the state of being from above. 
That is to say, they, they exist above, and from above they come down to the believer. So you've got those two parts to it. The existence, existence above and the coming down from above to the believer. James uses this truth to undergird his command in verse 16 for the, the diaspora to stop being seduced into deception. What James is pointing out is that the source of that which is naturally and inherently valuable is not Satan and company, nor the lust pattern of humanity's sin nature. For from these two parties, natural and inherently valuable things cannot come, because they are themselves are not morally pure. But rather, that which is naturally and inherently valuable exists above, which is a reference to the upward things of God's cosmos diabolos, the world system of God. Actually, that's the cosmos of Satan. Let me fix that. Yeah, pull the heresy sign. Cosmos theos. I'm proud of you guys learning Greek. <laughs> okay. So let's get back on track here. Okay. So that which is naturally and inherently valuable exists above, which is a reference to the upward things of God's cosmos theos. In other words, God's spiritual world, if you will. Um, and we're going to call this as being a reference to what God would give from his throne room. In other words, as God the Father dictates what, what he desires and what we need and what he sends out coming from him, we're going to call that from his throne room. That's up for argumentation. Either way, this is talking about cosmos theos, the concept of God's world system, his plan, his um, will for humanity. It does not come within the fallen confines of Satan and company and dichotomous humanity, or even a trichotomous human, a believer, who is operating as a carnal or fleshly individual. Since these things exist above, they also come from above, the Father of lights as their source. James 1.17 teaches the following principles then. 1. That which is naturally and inherently valuable, and built to completion exists in God's world system, not Satan and companies or humanity's world system. Number two, it is from God's world system, above, that good and complete gifts are given, for he alone defines the standard and has the power to complete gifts in harmony to that standard. Number three, the believer is to remember these things when seduced by the bait in the trap. If we recognize that, the, that what's in the trap isn't good because it hasn't come from God, and that and the struggle that we find in, in that moment is that we want what's in that. We want the bait. So as we start succumbing to the testation we're facing, and we want that bait, if we will stop and remember and recognize that that bait is worthless to us, it doesn't have natural inherent value, it will please us, it will, we will enjoy it, because that's the only reason we go for it in the first place, is we want it. But if we will remember that because it's not from God, and because God speaks maybe against it directly or indirectly, that it's worthless, then we have the necessary belief to depend upon to not go for it. We're talking about operational framework of humanity here. In other words, if we've got this process, we perceive the bait on the trap, it's come through our senses to our parietal lobe, moved our left frontal lobe where we're evaluating it based upon our filtration systems, our lust pattern says, hey, you want that, um, our conscience says, hey, we can adapt to make that happen. Um, it's really not going to be that big of a deal. Um, we go for it. 
and we decide we have to come to the point of deciding to go for it or not. One of the factors that may dictate that and should dictate that is the recognition that it is worthless or the evaluation of whether it's worthless or valuable. If it doesn't come from God, it has no value. If God speaks against it, it has no value. Only that which comes from God holds value. So then we get in the war of do we let God determine what's valuable or do we let us determine what is valuable? Either way, the bait and the trap is invaluable. We will just deceive ourselves to give it fake value. When we do that, that's when we act and go for the bait. But if we remember that, remember and only desire that which is valuable, then we don't have to worry about the bait and the trap because it's not going to make a difference in our life. In verses 14 to 17 of chapter 1, James gives the mechanics of the process of testation, the ultimate purpose of testation, and the truth necessary for the believer to stop being seduced. The operational framework of humanity identifies that once information is perceived, it is evaluated. Once it is evaluated, a determination is made regarding its use. If the individual determines, determines the information valuable or dependable, then he places his faith upon it. This forms an operational norm and standard which dictates the individual's behavior. Here's a synopsis of James's statements concerning the norms and standards surrounding the process of testation and the ability of the believer to defeat the test. Number one, the believer volitionally consents to the bait because he finds value in it. The value may be purely that, it will, that he will enjoy it. Now that value again is a pseudo value. It's a fake value. Number two, however, since there is no value in the bait because it comes from Satan and company and not from God above, we can know that because of this, and number three, the believer does not and should not be deceived into sin. If we remember that it doesn't hold any value, and that it's worthless to us, we can then better, we are better equipped to stop the deception from happening. Because the ultimate goal, again, is not to get you to sin. It's to deceive you from truth. The less truth, or the less real value that we hold on to, the more corrupt Satan and company is able to make us. It snowballs, it builds upon itself, that's why when all else fails, you go back to the, the verses such as Psalm 37, 7 that say, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Or where David cries out and says, um, and, and God says, Be still and know that I am God. It's not, Be still and know who I am. No, it's be still and know and recognize that I am God. And the, inf inf the inference there is that I'm God and you're not. Jo God did the same thing in Job 38 where He comes out and tells Job to gird up his loins and take and come at him like a man. Recognize that he's not God and that God is God. Our job is to not be deceived, not to not sin. If we can stop the deception, we stop the sin. We stop the deception by recognizing the source of the bait and recognizing it doesn't hold any value, and therefore we don't need it. Any questions? <clears throat>